0: Today I'd like to start off by giving you all a two-part exam. That's right, this is a test. Now the good news is you've already passed the first part of the exam, and the reason why you passed is because the first part was to see how many of you would get up and walk out of the room when I said you'd be tested. So for all of you who just sat there dazed and confused, great job! You aced it. Now the second part of the exam involves a little more thinking. It involves answering a question, and that question is: True or false, I like taking tests. Again, the question is true or false. I like taking tests. You can answer the. You can write the answer on your paper. I just won't accept this for an answer. That's all I have to say. You know, for most ordinary people, we hate taking tests. Our chests tighten, beads of sweat collect on our foreheads, and we get that awful pit in our stomach. Even the mention of a test can cause us to squirm or want to exit a room. The fact is, tests can be humiliating. They can be discouraging or outright embarrassing. Some have gone so far to suggest that tests are more effective at degrading a person than grading them. As much as people don't like tests though, our world is filled with them. From high school to grade school to college to driving test to COVID test to drug tests to professional certifications, tests are an inherent part of our culture. It's virtually impossible to go through life completely escaping them and getting away test free. It should thus come as no surprise that even the Bible deals with tests. Not tests of multiple choice or written exam or true false, but test of a different sort test of purity, strength, character, and faith. Because most people don't like taking tests, I find it especially fascinating that the Bible records King David, a man after God's own heart, asking God to try him. That's right, a person as wise as King David asked to be tested. You don't need to turn there, but in Psalms 139, verse 23 through 24, David writes, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me. It's really quite astounding when you think about it that, God, that David asked God to try him, but why? Why would anyone ask to be tested? especially from God. What is the value of a test? Now, like most of you, I've taken a lot of tests in my life, driving tests, school tests, aptitude tests, you name it. But all the, of all the testing I've been involved with, the tests we do at work has given me appreciation for tests I'd never had before. You see, at work, our tests were not so much about evaluating people, but verifying our products the hardware and software we sell our customers. This product testing has caused me to consider why we test and the value such testing brings. Over the years, it's caused me to look at tests from a different perspective. And I found that looking at tests from a different viewpoint, a perspective that's not quite so personal, can be very helpful in understanding the test we, as God's people, encounter in our daily lives. So please allow me to explain. I work for a telecommunications infrastructure provider, and the equipment we make is not for the end consumer. It's not the smartphones, the tablets, or the communications devices you have in your home. Rather it's equipment that goes into cell towers and back-end offices that hardly anyone ever sees. This invisible infrastructure, which has slowly been migrating to the cloud, making it perhaps even more invisible, connects literally billions of people together and makes wireless systems work. It's what causes your phone to ring, messages to pop up on your display, or allows you to text with friends and family. When this infrastructure doesn't work, you may be able to turn your phone on, but many of the services you typically appreciate are instantly lost. Historically, these phone systems were designed to be extremely reliable. We designed our products to achieve what is called five nines carrier-grade reliability. Now, what that means when I say five nines carrier-grade reliability is that these systems would work 99.999% of the time, or five nines percent of the time. To put that number into perspective, in a year with 365 days, there's 31.5 million seconds. To achieve five nines carrier grade reliability means that out of those 31.5 million seconds, our systems must be up and functioning, providing service every week, every day, every hour, and can only be out of service due to a fault for less than 315 seconds, or roughly five minutes across the span of an entire year. These systems were extremely reliable and could be trusted to deliver critical services such as 911, Amber Alerts, OnStar, and FirstNet. Of course, to achieve a 5.9's reliable system, our systems were designed with no single point of failure and they would undergo extensive testing. We tested the systems under heavy stress, high traffic, simulated failures, pulling cards, cables, power supplies. We also tested our, uh, our systems through numerous cycles. Designer tests, product tests, systems tests, customer lab tests, and first market applications. To build a five nines carrier grade system, to build an extremely reliable system that can be depended on, it takes a lot of thought a lot of planning, and a lot of testing. You can't build a trustworthy system without lots and lots of testing. Of course, all these tests would have to be concluded before our product was declared generally available, meaning it could be reproduced and safely deployed across our customers' networks or it would serve the masses. Defective products have the potential of making an entire network fail. And causing millions of people to lose service. Therefore, before our customers would allow new software to enter their networks, those products had to be proven to meet certain standards. You know, in a similar fashion, God also requires we, his people, go through tests. In fact, most of us will go through many tests before entering his kingdom. To see what I'm talking about, please turn with me to Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Acts 14, verse 19. In Acts chapter 14, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas have recently fled the region of Iconium and come to the city of Lystra. There they observe a man who's been crippled since birth, listening intently to the gospel message. Now, Paul senses that this man has a great deal of faith. And so he tells this man, who has never walked a day in his life, to stand up straight on his feet. Now imagine being there for a moment. It must have been incredibly intense. Tons of people gathered around watching. What's going to happen? To the crowd's astonishment, the man does what Paul instructs. He stands up. And not only does he walk, he leaps. The crowd, of course, becomes hysterical over this miracle. They think that Paul and Barnabas are the gods, Zeus and Hermes. They say, and I'm quoting from verse 11, that the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. The priests of Zeus start to prepare sacrifice in Baal and Barnabas' honor. So Paul and Barnabas try to calm them down, telling the people that they are mere men and that the Almighty Creator should be credited with everything. For a time, things settle down, but then disaster strikes. Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who had chased Paul and Barnabas out of their cities, come to Lystra. Somehow they manipulate the people there who were previously ready to worship Paul and Barnabas to stone Paul. In an ironic twist, the atmosphere suddenly shifts from honor to murder. Reading now, verse 19, Acts 14, verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, that's Paul, around his body, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra Iconium and Antioch. That's right, Paul and Barnabas go right back into the cities of those who sought to kill them. Verse 22 strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. What incredible courage to press forward in the midst of such adversity. But as stated at the end of this verse, you and I, we shouldn't expect anything different. After all, all, Paul says, we, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. That just so happens to include you and I here today. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, please turn there to 2 Timothy 1, verse 6 through 8, 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 8, Paul reflects back at his time at Lystra and prepares Timothy to expect similar tests and tribulations. Now when Paul writes this second letter, he is once again faced with the bleakest of circumstances. Paul is in prison in chains and about to die. Many of the church have gone astray, completely forsaken him, or even worse, done him harm. And yet, in this letter, Paul encourages Timothy to stand strong and to continue in the faith. Reading now 2 Timothy 1, verse 6 through 8. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul tells Timothy to share with them in his sufferings. Skipping forward now to 2 Timothy 3, verse 11. 2 Timothy 3, verse 11. Paul recalls his time in Lystra, which we read, just read about in Acts. 2 Timothy 3, verse 11. Persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. So these are the same cities we just read about. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Notice, Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul doesn't say you might suffer persecutions. He doesn't say you could suffer persecution. He says you should expect it. You see, part of walking the narrow and difficult way involves going through tests. It is part of the process of being called and chosen in this evil age. Continuing in chapter 4, 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. He's talking about being executed here, he's going to be killed. Then in verse seven, summarizing his personal journey and reminding us that each that, that such tribulations will lead to something wonderful, Paul writes, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Going through tests is part of our Christian journey. As we walk the path of God's faithful and prepare to be part of the first resurrection, a resurrection the book of Hebrew calls a better resurrection, we should expect to endure afflictions. So be ready to share in my sufferings, Paul says, knowing that in the end there is a great reward for those who remain faithful. You know, of course, it wasn't just the Apostle Paul who explained we'll go through tests. Peter, James, John, Jude, and I suppose all the New Testament authors understood and taught this concept. I especially like the way Peter describes it, though, in 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. If you would please turn there, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. In this passage, Peter makes a sort of, you know, thus sort of observation. He knows that this question of why must I go through tests is something that nearly everybody struggles with. We are perplexed, bewildered, and grieved when we are tested. And yet Peter says, we shouldn't be. You can just visualize Peter sitting there shaking his head, knowing how people think, and how something which should be so obvious to us it still baffles us. In 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Peter writes, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now think about the timing that Peter's describing here. When is Christ's glory going to be revealed? I should mention that the Greek word here for revealed is apocalypsis, which I'm sure you recognize is related to our English word apocalypse. Will Christ's glory not be revealed, apocalypsis, when he returns, and all God's faithful are resurrected in the first resurrection? The Feast of Trumpets we will be keeping this coming Tuesday foreshadows that event. And what an incredible event it will be. Think about it. All humans that are alive will witness Jesus Christ coming in the clouds and see how his sacrifice has opened the way to eternal life. They will see you, God's faithful, inherit your crown of righteousness, change from mortal to immortal, from corruptible to incorruptible. What a wonderful event it will be. It's a day we should all be looking forward to, but until then, Peter, Paul, and so many of the New Testament authors remind us, you are going to be tested. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So don't just sit there, dazed and confused when that spiritual pop quiz comes. Be ready for it and rejoice knowing that such tests are part of the process of inheriting a wonderful reward. I mentioned that at work our products were slowly being migrated to the cloud. Now these cloud systems are based on the premise that instead of being built on application-specific hardware, or you could say bricks-and-mortar type of equipment, products should be software-based and virtual in nature. There's of course a lot that can be said about these cloud networks, But what I want to highlight today is that this new cloud environment has also spawned new methods of testing. Among multiple test methodologies to emerge, one of the more interesting concepts originated from a group of engineers working at Netflix. Now the engineers at Netflix realized that one of the best ways to build a reliable system was to throw it into an environment of chaos, an environment where trouble can strike from any location at different times in varying levels of intensity. The engineers at Netflix named their innovative testing solution the Chaos Monkey. According to an article from InfoWorld.com, this catchy name coming from the idea of, I quote, unleashing a wild monkey with a weapon in your data center or cloud to randomly shoot down instances and shoot through cables. The intention is, of course, to use this chaos to learn how to serve your customers better. By randomly wreaking havoc, Chaos Monkey helps engineers identify flaws that have to be fixed, shortcomings that have to be overcome. It uses the evil nature of chaos to produce something good, something that is resistant and stands strong in the face of adversity. I believe Mr. Avery shared this concept with you previously, but I, the reason I wanted to highlight it is because it provides such a good analogy for the world we live in. In this present evil age, Satan and his demons are constantly throwing things at you things like COVID, poor health, political instability, fake news, job insecurity, financial challenges. They're constantly throwing things at you, trying to trip you up and cause you to stumble. The interesting thing, though, is God used this world of chaos not for your detriment. But for your development, to make you stronger, and to prepare you to serve the masses. As King David wrote Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me. What a better way to achieve this than living in Satan's world of chaos. Please turn to Romans 8, verse 16. Romans 8, verse 16. In Romans chapter 8, Paul describes what it means to live in the Spirit, living for God's kingdom, instead of living in the flesh. He explains how the whole creation groans for something better, something better than this chaotic world held captive under Satan's influence. Paul also describes how the sufferings of this present evil age are not worthy to be compared to what God is in store for those who love him. Reading now Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. As you read in 1 Peter, this will happen at Christ's return, as pictured by the Feast of Trumpets. Verse 18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed, apocalypto, in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing apocalypsis of the sons of God. Dropping down now to verse 28, And we know, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Not some things, all things. Of course, all things includes the trials, tests, and tribulations you endure. You see, God is such an amazing God. He can take even the evil things of this world to use them to produce something of value. The chaos testing you undergo in this life, which Satan and his demons throw at you, is thus not for your detriment, but for your growth and development. You know, one of the things I observed at work was that our testing was never with the intention of failing a product. We invested way too much time and money for a product not to succeed. Tens of millions, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars. Rather, the purpose of the testing was so that our products would be guaranteed to succeed in our customers' networks, where it really mattered. Of course, every time we'd take a new product through various test cycles, inevitably we'd find things wrong with it. Places where it didn't function the way we wanted, wanted. situations where it didn't interact properly with other systems, and conditions where it'd crash and cause service interruptions. But you know, we never viewed these issues as indicators that our product was a failure. Rather, we viewed them as flaws that had to be fixed, shortcomings that had to be overcome, setbacks for which our engineers would work long hours to get things back on track. I can tell you from experience, it is so much better to uncover and correct weaknesses in a lab environment, in a contained pre-release environment, than to deal with those issues when they erupt in a customer's network and wreak havoc on a massive or even global scale. So finding issues with our product while testing wasn't necessarily a bad thing. It was actually an essential thing. It was essential to building a trustworthy product that would be ready to serve the masses. Eventually, all our major issues would be resolved and we would release an extremely reliable product, a five nines carrier-grade reliable product, into the market. You know, in fact, I can't remember a product we built ever failing to eventually make it. Enabling this, of course, was a team of designers who would reshape whatever needed reshaping. Designers who would correct whatever needed correcting. We depended on the creators to do what they do best and that is to produce something valuable, something worthy to enter our customers' networks. Of course, the analogy I'm drawing from this is that you and I also have such a creator, the most wonderful creator of all, a creator who loves you, who gave his only begotten son for you, a creator who can be trusted above everything else. Notice in verse 32 how precious you are to God and what an incredible price he paid for you. Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You are so precious to God, Jesus Christ endured a horrific death for you. And if God the Father and Jesus Christ are willing to go to such extremes for you, what limit is there of what they won't do? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God will never leave you or forsake you. He is always there for you. Our job, what you and I have to do, is to trust him. And to willingly conform to his molding hands. God will never forsake you. Only you can forsake him. You know, as I reflect on Paul's words here, it leads me to another method of testing that has gained wide scale attention with cloud systems. This other type of testing is called canary testing. In modern cloud networks, canary testing validates new software by first releasing it only to a small percentage of customers. It starts small and then grows progressively larger, sort of like dipping your toe into a pool of water before diving in. Unfortunately, if a flaw with that software when you dip your toe in, so to speak, is found, that small percentage of customers may experience some very negative results. The upside, though, is that you should only damage one toe instead of your whole body. Now, this concept of canary testing dates back to the early 1900s in the coal miners of Great Britain and the United States. You see, around 1911, coal miners began taking caged birds, typically canaries, down into mine shafts to detect carbon monoxide and other toxic gases. Canaries have a, tolerance for airborne, have a lower tolerance for airborne toxins than humans, So if a canary in a mineshaft falters, and or dies, it gives the miners warning that their lives are also in danger, and they must evacuate the mine. Sometimes these canaries taken in the mines could be revived, other times it was fatal. Not surprisingly, this somewhat gruesome form of testing using helpless caged birds encountered a great deal of criticism. Thankfully, it's now been replaced with modern detection systems, but I wanted to highlight it because it gives a good illustration of how God does not work with you. God does not treat you like canaries in a cage. He doesn't take you down into some mine shaft, into the deep, dark recess of the earth like a caged animal to see if you will survive. God loves you. He protects you from spiritual harm. He's faithfully there for you in good times and bad times in the midst of the most severe trials. While Satan will certainly try to take you down into the deepest and darkest and most depraved places, you can trust God will never abandon you. He will always deliver you and provide you a way of escape when you really need it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, Please turn there to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. God makes a promise that he will not allow you to be tested beyond what you can endure. You are never tested, spiritually speaking, to fail. You are only tested to the extent which you can succeed. Reading now 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says, no temptation. Now, the Greek word translated here, temptation, is parosmos, which means to put something to the proof by experiment, experience provocation, or adversity. This word parosmos is derived from the Greek word parazo, which can can be translated to examine, to prove, to tempt, or to test. In fact, this Greek word parazo also shows up later in this verse, and is translated here as tempted. Continuing on in verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has take, overtaken you except such as is common to man. Here, Paul is saying, similar to what Peter said don't be surprised when a test comes your way, as though some strange thing happened to you. Being tested is part of being human. All people, not just God's elect, encounter trials and tribulations. Dealing with challenges is an inherent part of living in Satan's world, a world filled with chaos. Finishing up in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 now, no temptation has overtaken you such as common to man, but God is faithful, who would not allow you to be de- tempted, parazo, or you could translate this as tested, beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may, o- may be able to bear it. Again, the point is that God is there for you. He will never leave you or forsake you. If or when you really need it, He will always provide a way of escape. All you have to do is follow the lead of your elder brother, Jesus Christ. You see, Christ knows the way, He's gone before, He knows the traps, the pitfalls, the places of danger. And most importantly, he was able to triumph over them all. In doing so, he has the ability to lead you out of each hazard, to set you back onto the path that leads to life, to fill your lungs, so to speak, with the oxygen of God's Holy Spirit. The truth is there is a light at the end of every spiritual tunnel. There is no spiritual test you will face where you are destined for failure. Of course, That doesn't mean there are no obligations on your part, that there aren't certain expectations which are critical for you to comply, because there are. Among those expectations, I submit that one of the most important is to be willing to learn. To be willing to learn and to take corrective action. Consider, what good is a test if you don't learn from it and take action to counteract any negative results? Now, I realize this is sort of an unusual portion of the message to give a title, because titles, after all, are typically given somewhere near the beginning of the message, or perhaps at the end, but I want to give the title now because this title helps introduce our next illustration regarding Tess. The title of this split sermon is From Chaos to Canaries to the Vasa, spelled V-A-S-A, Why We Go Through Tess. Again, the title is From Chaos to Canaries to the Vasa, Why We Go Through Tests. On a small island in the heart of Stockholm is one of the most amazing museums I've ever visited. Unlike most museums which display vast collections of artifacts or artwork, this museum was designed to showcase just one object, an object so large and so impressive It would draw tourists from all over the world and cause the museum which protects it to become the most visited museum in Scandinavia. The object showcased in this museum was built in the 1600s and it is almost entirely made of wood. It sat at the bottom of the Stockholm sea for over 300 years until it was rediscovered in 1956. In a marvel of engineering, at least in Marvel of Engineering for 1961. It took them several years to figure out how to do this. The people of Stockholm were able to raise this large object, a warship called the Vasa, to the surface. Amazingly, the Vasa was so well preserved that after the water and mud were removed over 300 years later, it was still able to float. Today, the Vasa is the world's only well-preserved 17th century warship, and it stands as a testament to power, to beauty, and the lessons of failing to learn from tests. You see, this great worship was commissioned by King Gustav of Sweden to strike fear into the hearts of his enemies. But on its maiden voyage of August 10th of 1628, Roughly 20 minutes after it set sail, disaster struck. Pride turned to humility. Rejoicing turned to mourning. At the time, the Vasa was the most powerfully armed warship in the world. It stretched 226 feet in length and had two gun decks, housing a total of 64 bronze cannons. A crowd had gathered to see it set sail, and the crew had even taken their wives, friends and families on board. After sailing about 1,500 yards, however, a light gust of wind caused the Vasa to falter and then heel over onto its port side. Water poured into the gun portals. The ship plunged even further. With no hope of saving her, panicked passengers scrambled for their lives. According to the reports, between 30 to 50 people died in the ship's sinking, all the while a crowd of onlookers watched helplessly in horror. Since that time, numerous investigations have been conducted to understand why the ship sank. And although multiple reasons have been uncovered, one of the primary reasons was due to a design change midway through the ship's construction. It turns out that King Gustavus decided that the ship did not hold enough cannons, and so he ordered a second gun deck be added to add more firepower. The Swedish Navy had never built a two-gun deck ship before, But complied with the order since Danish boats already had the feature. And after all, if the Danes could do it, so can we, right? Unfortunately, this additional deck also raised the ship's center of gravity, making the ship top heavy and unseaworthy. But you know, still, despite this blunder, tragedy should have been avoided. Not a single life needed to be lost. According to Swedish records, prior to the Voss's launch, the crew had conducted a standard stability test in the presence of the ship's admiral and captain. This test consisted of 30 men running from side to side on the upper deck. After three traversals by the men, the test was halted because the ship was rocking so violently it it was feared it would heal over. Now think about it for a moment. From this test, you've got this ship rocking so much, you're afraid it's going to sink if you don't stop the test. So what do you do next? Despite the results of this test, no corrective action was taken. There wasn't room for additional stabilizing ballast. So everyone involved just pretended nothing was wrong. No one was willing to speak out and confront the trouble that loomed. As a result, more than 30 people lost their lives. The point is this. Tests are often extremely valuable. But if you don't learn from them and take action, what good is it accomplished? While you may not like being tested, or potentially like the results of a test, you can't afford to ignore them you can't afford to not take action. Test followed up with corrective action will make you stronger, wiser, and ultimately prove you worthy to fulfill your purpose, that you can withstand turbulent winds and remain upright in the midst of a storm. But if you ignore your weaknesses revealed from testing, it can spell disaster. You know, at the beginning of this message, I described how King David asked God to try him in the book of Psalms. If you would, turn with me there now to Psalms 139, Psalms 139, verses 23 through 24. Psalms 139, verse 23 through 24. Now, in this chapter, uh, at the beginning of... Um, now, let me see here. Let me find a place. In this chapter, David describes how God has searched him and knows him extremely well. God knows David's sitting down, his rising up, his words, even before he speaks them. He knows David's beginnings, how David's inner parts were formed, because after all, there is no place hidden from God. God knows David so incredibly well, God knows David even better than David knows himself. You know, not only does God know David well, there's this great love that accompanies this relationship. When David asked God to try him, it is clear that David realizes that such tests will only be for his good. David realizes that his creator who knows him so well and loves him so much only desires his success and will always be there to help him succeed. He will never leave him or forsake him. With this backdrop, David thus writes, reading now Psalms 139, Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, I hadn't quoted the last part of this passage until now. But did you notice at the end of this verse, actually at the end of this chapter... David makes a direct connection between God searching him and trying him to being led in the way everlasting. The fact is, there's a direct correlation between the two. There is a direct connection between the test you encounter in inheriting God's kingdom and eternal life. As Paul said, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Paul understood this. Peter understood this. Nearly all the New Testament authors wrote about this. David also understood that being searched and tried was part of the process to inheriting God's kingdom. You see, part of living in Satan's world of chaos and preparing for God's kingdom means we will go through tests. Those tests may come in different forms, be of different degrees or have different origins. But one thing they all have in common is that they all work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So the next time you face some fiery trial, which is to test you, don't think it's some strange thing that is happening to you. Instead, do your best to learn from it and rejoice, knowing that as you partake in Christ's sufferings, when his glory is revealed on that wonderful day pictured by trumpets, you will also be glorified with him and receive your crown of righteousness. May you therefore learn from the tests you encounter, faithfully put your trust in God, and allow Him to lead you, just like He led David, in the way everlasting.